one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space Episode 322 for the week of May 29th, 2011. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight, as always, is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene. Can't wait to begin this one, Sawyer. How are you doing today? Doing great, thank you. Welcome as well, Mark Raderman. It's a great time to talk about space. Always great time on Talking Space, and welcome as well, Gina Hurley. Good evening. How are you guys? I think we're all right. Thank you. So let's get things started off with the current space shuttle mission, the final flight of the space shuttle Endeavour, STS-134, which last time we spoke, we recapped EVAs, or spacewalks, 1 and 2. Since then, two more spacewalks occurred. That was EVA-3 and EVA-4. And as of the current recording, which is at about 10.30 p.m. Eastern Time on May 29th, 2011, the hatches are closed between Endeavour and the ISS, and they are preparing to undock within the next hour and a half. So uh, let's see if we can get a little recap so far on what the listeners have missed on STS-134. Okay, to go ahead and really recap for uh, EVA number three, and I'm going to go ahead and read off from the press kit here. Uh, EVA three took, uh, they expected it to be about six hours and 30 minutes. The uh, crew uh, for that uh, particular uh, EVA was Drew Foistel and uh, Michael Fink. The, the, this was going to be uh, Mr. Foistel's uh, or Dr. Foistel's uh, last uh, uh, opportunity to do an EVA on this particular flight. Uh, the intravehicular officer or uh, the choreographer was going to be Greg Shamatov on that, and it looks like they were going to be really, really busy around the Zarya module. Uh, they had to go ahead and install and hook up a power data grapple fixture on onto Zarya, uh, installed a uh, video signal converter also on, on Zarya, and installed jumper cables between Harmony and uh, the Unity node and the Zarya m- module. So. There was a lot of electrical work work on that particular EVA. Um, For EVA-4, which sadly was going to be the last EVA uh, done by uh, space shuttle astronauts, and again, I'm reading straight from the the, uh, the press kit here. Oh, by the way, before I even begin on EVA-4, EVA-3 had a new uh, protocol um, for getting astronauts prepared uh, for that. Um, it was uh, basically called ILE. I forget exactly what the acronym st- stands for. Somebody over there is going to correct me on that. Um, but essentially, instead of going through what they call a campout procedure, basically sleeping overnight in, um, in the airlock to sort of rid the body of excess nitrogen, 
what um, the aisle uh, procedure did was basically go ahead and um, do what they call exercise, which really just amounted to moving your hands and arms and legs around for about 50 minutes or so before going back out. Um, the problem it worked nicely. The problem is though that you lose about 40 minutes of uh, capability on your on the CO2 scrubbers because of that. Um, now, but but the the procedure worked wonderfully. And just so the, you know, Gene, IL stands for in suit light exercise. Thank you, sir. And it's funny they call it exercise. It's actually just you're you're basically moving your arms and legs for about for a few for about uh, you know 50 minutes or so before going back out the door. Uh, and again, it was approved by uh, all the medical folks over at NASA, and it looked like it was a smashing success. However, they did not use that protocol for EVA four. The reason why is that. Uh, one of the EVA uh, participants in that, Greg Shamatov, his uh, uh, CO2 sensor was apparently a little bulky on EVA2. So because of that, they decided, well, why don't we just go ahead and play this safe and go back to the old campout procedure? Because, again, you've got CO2 buildup as a result of vial. So they went ahead and uh, uh, went ahead with the old campout procedure. So Mike Fink and Greg Shamatov spent the night in the – um, in the airlock, and um, the procedure there for EVA-4 was to go ahead and stow the orbital boom sensor system on uh, one of the trusses on the starboard truss of the uh, of the ISS. Uh, swap gra- grapple fixtures on the boom to make sure you know you've got new new fixtures there, um, and release the uh, expendable di- uh, diameter fixtures on the spare. Um, Special Purpose Dexterous Manipulator Arm, or Dexter, just to make sure that that Dexter was that particular spare on Dexter was working okay. Um, so as far as I know, all went well. But the sad part about it is EVA four, uh, which was performed by Michael Fink and Greg Shamatov, with uh, Drew Foistel being the uh, intervehicular um, crew member or uh, choreographer, uh, was the last EVA to be performed by shuttle astronauts. And Sawyer, you have. Uh, a little statement that was made by uh, by one of the uh, the spacewalkers on that, correct? I sure do. And that was from Greg Shamatoff as they were about ready to re-enter the International Space Station. Congratulations, everybody, on the 
successfully complete. I that was so that was really fitting. It was a really good salute to uh, uh, to you know station assembly and construction, which started what 1998, and here we are, uh, 2011, and job completed, and we have uh, nothing to uh, we have everything to thank for. Uh, uh, for the uh, for the space shuttle, if, without the shuttle, this station would not be in existence. So, if 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 shuttle has a legacy, it's going to be orbiting our heads for the next ten years. By the way, may I just add, going back to the uh, spacewalks for one thirty four, the third one, which both were scheduled to last about six and a half hours, EVA three lasted six hours fifty four minutes, and the final EVA by any space shuttle crew. Scheduled, that is, was completed at 7 hours, 24 minutes. So, Sawyer, again, we, uh, the, by the time folks listen to this, uh, Endeavor would have been, uh, would have been undocked, correct? And probably on the ground by now, but why don't we go over to a little bit what's going to happen in, in the next, uh, what, 90 minutes or so? Right, when undocking is set to occur at 11.55 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time. And uh, they will then perform their traditional fly-around, the first time that they will fly around the International Space Station when it is officially completed. That's correct. But um, uh, the uh, Endeavor is going to go ahead and complete about uh, one and a half revs of the complex, and then uh, Greg Johnson is going to fire Endeavor's jets to leave the area. But about... uh, Two hours after undocking, a second firing of the engines, which would you know normally take the shuttle further away from the ISS, is actually going to go ahead to br- br- and bring Endeavour back toward the station uh, to test the uh, the uh, sensor test for Orion navigation and risk mitigation or storm system that uh, we spoke about uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, uh, we also had a little bit of a, a special on it a couple of weeks ago too. Um, now, uh, what what that will do is uh, uh, storm storm is going to go ahead. The test is going to go ahead and characterize the performance of the sensors in Endeavour's payload bay, and then the acquisition of the reflectors on the shuttle's docking tar- target at the station. There's a there's a small dark docking uh, target that was put there by STS-133. That storm is going to go ahead and u- utilize. Now, the the rendezvous that they're going to perform here is going to mimic a uh, an Orion vehicle or, um, you know, multi-purpose crew vehicle, whatever they're going to call it, um, rendezvous and trajectory. And I believe they're, they're going to approach no more than about 600 feet to the station. Um, and I think, actually, I think Endeavour is targeted to approach the station to a point of about 1,000 feet below and about 300 feet behind the station at its closest point. So it's going to be, uh, it's going to be kind of interesting to watch. Um now, nearly about five after five hours after undocking, uh, Endeavour is going to fire our engines again to depart to depart the station essentially for the last time, um, and it's going to just keep on going, and and uh, that will basically be the last time Shuttle Endeavour will see the ISS. Oh, it's a sad thought. Yeah, it is. Her, her next stop is going to be the Kennedy Space Center, and then after that, the uh, the California Science Center. So. So with that, we wish you, uh, we wish Endeavor and her crew fair seas and uh, clear skies and a safe return to the Kennedy Space Center scheduled for 2.30-ish a.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time on Wednesday, June 1st. 
And uh, there's one other event that's going to start a little after 8 p.m. Eastern Daylight Savings Time on Tuesday, May 31st. And uh, by then, this episode will hopefully be out. And Atlantis will be heading on her way to Launchpad 39A, right? Yeah, I think somebody is going to be there, right, Mark? <laughs> it's going to be a uh, nonstop shuttle night for me. I plan to be there uh, comfortably enough before, but not uh, not as early as I like to be sometimes. But I'll be at Kennedy Space Center for Atlantis's rollout from the VAB. Um, also plan to see Atlantis out on the pad the following morning, following the sunrise. And in between the two, of course, is Endeavour's landing that you just mentioned, which I hope to see with the press from the shuttle landing facility. So it's going to be a uh, never-ending night, but uh, one for the history books. And I do hope that you will take pictures for us. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I still have trouble when people say pictures and my name <laughs> in the same sentence, taking it seriously. Uh, yeah, I, I, I certainly will. And... Uh, I'm, I'm hoping for one or two out of hundreds that will be usable because especially the nighttime stuff, uh, I don't have a real uh, camera set up. And it's quite a challenge for a point-and-shoot to, uh, to catch the, uh, the white shuttle in those arc floodlights that they have on her. And, uh, but, yeah, I'll take some. And sunrise is a little bit easier to, uh, to accommodate. So I'll have some shots. Just remember, the last shot you took could have easily been on the cover of Time magazine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the one looking send... down at Endeavor from the vehicle assembly building. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There were some photographers with some interesting rigs. They'd uh, one had a camera up on a uh, I can't remember exactly how it was set up, but on a long pole, and we're up on the 16th level in the VAB, and he's holding the camera up, and and you know so that it can look down slightly because you're not allowed to really be over the railing because they've got hazards of, of things dropping and falling and causing damage. So a uh, quick description of what it, what it looked like. I think he had a, uh, a remote viewfinder so that he could see what his camera was seeing, which was like 10 feet up in the air. He could look at a handheld viewfinder and see it and trigger the camera. And uh, that was, there's pretty innovative people, uh, with their photography and and you see some of the shots it it pays off there's some really good people out there boy when it comes to journalists and getting the shuttle they they they'll almost do anything like you know even going down to houston and riding in one of the motion-based simulators like uh like somebody from the press that you spoke to recently yeah that's another good story uh we'll roll that here next and uh here is an interesting interview from a press-on-press press standpoint. You know, Talking Space has interviewed some astronauts. We've talked with them about their experience flying the shuttle and what it's like. So how about we switch gears? Why not talk to one of our own? Why not talk to a journalist, somebody that's got a little bit of the inside access to, to, to Kennedy, to Johnson Space Center, to, to things that uh, we don't necessarily get that much exposure to. So today I've got on the phone with me, journalist from Space.com, Denise Chow. Denise, welcome to Talking Space. Hi, thanks for having me. Back a few, uh, uh, probably months ago now, I've lost track. We were uh, we were at, at Kennedy and we were talking and you mentioned that you had flown the shuttle 
to a, uh, a landing. How did that go? Tell me about that. That's one of the things that stuck with me that I've got to hear more. <laughs> yeah, well, um, actually, while I was um, in Houston uh, at Johnson Space Center covering the Discovery of SDS-133 mission, I actually um, got the opportunity to tour a couple of the facilities and some of the astronaut training um, centers here at JSC. And I got to take a, a ride in the motion-based shuttle simulator, which is in Building 5. And um, basically what it is, it's a, it's a machine that replicates launch, ascent, entry, and landing. Um, astronauts use it a lot. They, uh, they practice all of those things and then also practice various um, abort landings and malfunctions that can happen um, during launch and ascent and then also entry and landing. Um, so I was actually um, there with, I had a um, pilot trainer with me and I had a colleague and we got strapped into this um, simulator. And w the, one of the neat things about it is that it's motion-based so that it, it sort of provides all the motions and the feelings that you would have um, during all those major milestones in launch and ascent. Um, but it also has the ability to, when you get strapped in, it replicates the vertical launch position, so you really do feel like you're in a shuttle. And it's, for me especially, you know, the closest thing I'll ever get to experiencing a real launch. Um, so what it does is that it, it simulates all the motions of the launch and entry except for the G-force. So You'll feel the vibrations, um, basically the person who's in there with you, so my uh, trainer there, will go through all the pre-launch checks that all the astronauts do. Um, you'll be lying there and you'll feel the main engine um, ignition and you'll feel the vibrations of what that feels like. And, and then it will go through all the major milestones. And the thing about launch and ascent, um, as you probably know and some of your listeners probably know, is that it's, it's mostly controlled. So um, the astronauts are there to jump in if they need to to do any manual controls, but for the most part, you're just kind of along for the ride. And um, so it basically, you'll feel the vibrations of it. Um, you'll feel the launch, um, the SRB separation, uh, and the roll program. You feel all of that. Um, you don't feel the G-forces, but... Um, everything else, and what they did was they created an artificial scenery. So you'll see, out, if you look out the windows, uh, I was sitting in the commander seat, and if you look out the windows, you'll see, okay, now we cleared the tower. When you do the roll program, it, you, you'll feel that, and you'll also see it out your window. And then when you start to get into orbit, it sort of becomes a lot darker, and then the blackness of space. So um, we did that. I think we did two different... Um, simulated launches, and then we sort of went into the different landing situations, and I got to take control of some of those and try it myself. Um, I'm not a pilot. <laughs> I hear that some pilots do better at it, and actually I heard a lot of people that are good at video games do quite well at the simulators, but um, I had one, a little bit of a rough landing, and then once I got the hang of it, sort of tried a little better, but um, we didn't do any of the abort scenarios, but I have heard from other um, reporters that have tried that, that they can um, simulate sort of during launch, but also during uh, landing some different malfunctions that can go wrong, and that's where the astronauts practice these different scenarios. And um, some people have done RTLS aborts. Um, I didn't get to do that. I just did three normal landings. But, I mean, it was really fun. It was sort of a little time for me to you know, experience a little bit about what it would be like to be an astronaut and go through these training exercises. And actually, while we were there, the 134 crew had just finished a training run of their own, so we saw them. And, um, you know, it was neat because, you know, a lot of times when we report on this stuff, we don't actually get to try it. But it was sort of one of those lucky times that I got to, to test it out myself. I'm, I'm curious, when you talk about landing, uh, 
do you experience some of the, I guess, the maneuvers, the the roles, those those things, the the transitions in speed? Does all of that yeah. happen kind of real time? You do, and um, we sort of get. Well, I did. I got talked through the different procedures of when to do this and when to do that because I, although you know, I've heard them talk about these things, I have never gone through it before, and so. Um, you go through the different, the glide slope, he'll explain to you, okay, this is what you want to see on your displays. And all the displays, it's kind of neat because all the displays and all of the controls are, you know, a, a direct replica of what you would see if you were sitting in the flight deck on in a real shuttle. So all the knobs and switches work, and you're also wearing the headset, and you're communicating with um, what's supposed to be mission control, but it's the people on the ground that are doing going through the training with you. And so you're talking to each other there. Um, you know, I had the, my trainer was sort of explaining to me, okay, you know, now you sort of do the little maneuver here and then you know, put the landing gear down. So he'll go through it and he'll explain to you all the timelines, you know, at this point and at this altitude, uh, you want to do this. And, and you also have um, uh, the wheel brakes that you have to control also. So everything, you know, there is, is very much how they would go through it um, on one of their training runs. And so it, it it is kind of, you know, you're, you do feel like you just landed the space shuttle, but <laughs> but he does. He'll go through all the, the major milestones with you. And he, uh, he also did that for launch, too. He would say, okay, this is SRB SEP. Now, you know, we drop, just dropped the external tank and, and all that. So it was really neat. How much time did you get in the simulator for all of this? It sounds like it was a pretty good spell. Yeah, I mean, I guess it was maybe 30 minutes or so we we did two launches and then we did three landings um one of my colleagues who um is based here in houston she also got um to go through it twice two landings so we did spend um you know a significant amount of time there but we also tried a couple of uh a different training things too they also here at jfc they have a um a facility where they have mock-ups um full-size mock-ups of the shuttle um also the mid deck, the flight deck, and the hatch, so you can crawl through the hatch. So we did that. That was really neat because it really gives you a sense of the size of these different compartments. So climbing in through the hatch and um, the mid deck, where you know, for on orbit, where they sleep, and also there's a lot of storage facilities there. And then there's a ladder that you climb up to get to the flight deck, and the flight deck is very cramped. I found. But um, one of the things that you don't think about is that while it is cramped on, on Earth, when you are on orbit and you can float around, you actually have much more room than you think. So um, the mock-up facility was really interesting, too, because they also have um, mock-ups of the different modules of the space station. So you can go through and see. Um, you, they use that also for training. And um, just the other day, while we were here and for uh, reporting on the 134 mission, um, they invited us to a media event for the, with the 135 crew, and they were practicing um, getting suited up and then also uh, doing ingress and egress of the through the hatch. Um, so what they did was, in the vertical mock-up, they got all suited up, they went in one by one, got strapped into their seats just as they would. Um, on you know launch day, and then after that they practiced coming out, um, fully suited up in the orange, um, in the orange flight suits, and and we got to see that. So that was really neat too. I mean, these mock-ups are incredible when you see how big they actually are. Um, you know they have a full-size shuttle in that facility, um, and you know it, it was a nice little glimpse into what the astronauts do every day. They had a 45-minute class in between when they spoke to us and then when they tried. Um, doing the uh, the entering into the shuttle and everything, so yeah, it was it was really fun. 
I'm curious. Uh, I was at, at KSC for Atlantis's rollover from the OPF to the VAB, and the crew was there. They they marched down the you know down the taxiway uh, down the road in front of Atlantis as it was as it was moved, and it really struck me. There's only four. Yeah. Has, yeah. has the size of the crew? Do, do you look every when you've seen them? Does it strike you as to oh? Yeah, um, I mean, a lot of people, I've heard them as, uh, being referred to as the final four, and they did um, talk a little bit about that because uh, as reporters, we were curious as to how things are going in the training flow with only four crew members. And they did say that because there were only four of them, um, they are having to take on multiple roles. So normally when you have a pilot, you know, the commander, the pilot, and then the mission specialist, they all have very designated roles and very designated jobs. Um, and everyone sort of does their thing as part of the mission, and and that's you know they wear the hat of the mission specialist. And but for this crew, Atlantis, um, the 135 crew, because there's only four of them, you know, Sandy Magnus was saying, well, you know, you take over a little bit of the pilot's job. You also she's the one that's working the mid deck, and so it's kind of neat. Like they're all four of them are very experienced base flyers, and so um, they are able to sort of have this more fluid in terms of what their jobs are, but at the same time, it's also a little more challenging because they are having to pick up a lot of um, the different uh, tasks that they wouldn't normally have to do in in the position that they are assigned to, but um, they seem like a very capable crew. Um, They're a really fun crew. We had a lot of fun talking to them, Um, and they're also, you know, they are aware that, you know, this is the last mission. They spoke a little bit about that and how you know, the different milestones have been coming up and it's really starting to hit home that, you know, this is the last shuttle flight and they're a part of this and um, it sounds like they've really tried um, to actively involve everyone who's been involved with the space shuttle program and really share that experience with everybody. And I know that it seems like NASA has really tried to do that as well in terms of including a lot of the employees and their families in the big events like rollout and rollover and, and having everyone present and allowing all these people that have been such an integral part of this program to, to really share in the last couple of missions. And so that seems really nice. Well, Denise, I, I got a question. Since neither you or I are pilots, but we've uh, we've traveled, we've seen the cockpit of modern commercial aircraft, you know, commercial airliners. Um, first time you were in the the flight deck on the simulator, were you? What was what was your thoughts as to the complexity of what you were looking at? Oh well, complete intimidation, really. <laughs> Um, there are a lot. I actually took some pictures and I tweeted it out because I thought it was um, so interesting. I'm, I'm a really big um, airplane buff. I really, you know, growing up, loved all sorts of aircraft. And so getting to sit in um, the commander's chair and see the, um, the control panels and all the switches and knobs and everything, I mean, it was just intimidating because there are so many of them, first of all. And I don't know how everyone keeps track, how the astronauts keep track, but it was it was great. I mean, I got to I well, our trainer he explained a lot of the very critical controls. So things like putting down the landing gear, I know which switch that is, and then um, it's a joystick. So, um, but it also has a lot more different controls. So you actually um, the twisting base you can provide yaw control. So um, just seeing it, I mean, soaking it all in, it was a really interesting time. I we also in the mock-ups the controls are not they're not workable, but um, 
near the back, you can see where um, the robotics operations take place with the space shuttle robotic, um, with the robotic arm. So there were also all sorts of panels there that you could look at. And, I mean, it was just completely, I was in awe. I was really in awe. <laughs> but it was, it was really interesting. Um, there was a lot going on. <laughs> I'm not surprised at the the word intimidation and and being in awe. Uh, how was it for you? Said the flight deck was a little small, almost. Of course, that was in gravity. Uh, right. Did you feel like, gee, I wish there was, you know, more windows. I wish I could see better outside. Um. I mean, it is it is cramped. There's, um, you know, the seats for people, and to get in, you sort of have to. Climb, well, this is, you know, in the simulator, but also you have to climb over parts of, um, you know, the mission specialist seat and then actually climb over this one part of the control panel in the center to get into the pilot and the commander seat. So it is cramped quarters. Um, with the windows, um, I'm told that we were speaking to Rex Walheim and he had, when he was all suited up, he had a little mirror on his left arm, well, sort of around his wrist like a wristwatch. And it was on the outside of his suit, and uh, one of the reporters asked him what that mirror was for. And he said that the the windows at sort of on the top of the shuttle, what they do is um, when they're launching, going through launch and ascent, he uses that mirror, so he sort of like holds it up and looks out, uses it to look out the top windows. And he says that that gives him some really neat views of Florida and also just as they pull away from the Earth. He can use that to see the earth go by and he said that it was a really amazing like the first time he did that it was really amazing so i never even really thought about it i mean i guess out of the pilot and commander's windows they can see sort of what's going on but i imagine that they are mostly focused on what their duties are during those major milestones in launch and ascent but um you know just hearing greg johnson the other day um in some of his live interviews he was saying that the first time you know he looked over his shoulder as they were um going through us and seeing, you know, the Atlantic Ocean, uh, he said that was just an incredible experience. And I imagine that, you know, that would be fantastic just to see as they're, as they're rocketing into the, to the sky. I mean, it must be an incredible sight. And, you know, when you hear Box and the other astronauts that have thousands, thousands of hours of flight time talk mm -hmm. about something being really incredible, that has got to be something special. Yeah, and I mean, I, I've heard so many of those astronauts say that, but every time, I mean, I wish that, they always say, I wish everyone could experience that, and it's true. I mean, even some of the imagery that's come out of this mission and also 133, but um, in terms of just recent imagery that came out, um, the last, the fourth and final spacewalk of the 134 mission, which actually was the last spacewalk that was performed by a shuttle crew, um, Greg Shamatov, he took some incredible photos Um as they were, it was near the end, and he had a camera with a fisheye lens, and he took some photos of um, the space station, and Endeavour was docked, at, um, you could see Endeavour docked, and it was, I mean, those images are just breathtaking when you when you do see them, and um, we're also waiting on some photos from the Soyuz um, flyout, and I have no doubt that those are going to be spectacular as well. Um, that was sort of a, a very interesting maneuver that um, allowed Paolo Nespoli to take some photos of the space station at some unique angles and also with Endeavour Dock there. And it was sort of this historic photo opportunity because you won't, you know, have that opportunity to do that ever again. And so 
just images that are going to come out. Everyone, you know, that we've talked to and the flight controllers have all said, you know, that it's just an incredible achievement. And to see these photos is really a testament to all the hard work that's gone on. And and it's true. I mean, it, it is an engineering marvel. And, you know, getting a chance to see these photos from space, it, it's incredible. And then a lot of the images that come down, you know, Ron Garin is someone that tweets very, um, very, uh, you know, frequently, a lot of photos that he takes from space, and Paolo Nespoli did the same. So I think you know, social media has really allowed us to to participate in some of that, in however small a way. <laughs> Sounds like when civilians get more of an opportunity to go to space, that we definitely want a window seat, then, don't we? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, Denise, thanks for joining us on Talking Space. Uh, Tell us where folks can can read more of your uh, your journalistic work and where they can follow you, uh, Twitter, and any anything you'd like to tell us about. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, well, all my articles are posted um, at space.com, www.space.com. Um, you know, I, I am covering the um, 134 mission now through landing, um, but on the site we cover a whole variety of things from human spaceflight to science, astronomy, and sky watching. Um, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is just at Denise Chow, my name, D-E-N-I-S-E-C-H-O-W. That's sort of where you can find some of um, not only my work, but also I tweet photos and some behind-the-scenes stuff as I'm going along covering these missions and whatnot. So definitely love to connect with people. So thanks so much for allowing me to come and speak on your podcast, Mark. Thank you, Denise. A privilege and a lot of fun. Yes, Mark, thank you so much for that spectacular interview and... Uh I'm glad that you were able to get in contact with this person, and uh, I can't believe they got to ride in the simulator still. I'm jealous. Yeah, it kind of makes me wish I was a Texan instead of a Floridian, but then look at what I would have missed here without a whole lot of travel like some of these folks do. All I know is, Mark, I'm looking forward to hearing some of the war stories you're going to accumulate over the next uh, couple of days with uh, uh, STS-135 rollout and uh, – of course, Endeavor coming home for the last time. So, you know, you're going to be watching history being made right there. So I envy you, sir. Me too. <laughs> for this next story now, we're going to go a little 80s diva style on you. And by that, I mean we're going to be discussing the vehicle formerly known as Orion. In other words, NASA has announced their new vision of their future manned space exploration, and that is the MPCV, which... Stands for the Gene. Help me out here, please. Uh, the multi-purpose crew vehicle. Um, again, this is just in, in the way I, I see it is this sort of Orion relabeled. Um, it will have a, a mission duration of about 21 days, and uh, the way it'll return it. May sound awfully familiar, but it will return essentially the way the old Apollo capsules returned, um, right splashing right down in, in the Pacific Ocean, just off California. Uh, it, um, as far as reusability is concerned, well, we'll go ahead and and, and talk about that in a little bit. Um, so, why don't you go ahead and uh, play uh, the way uh, uh, Doug Cook, who runs the uh, the, the uh, who's essentially the project manager for all this. Why don't you go ahead and, and run the, the announcement he, he made for, for, uh, for that? Sure thing. After careful analysis and very thoughtful deliberations by our senior management team, 
Administrator Charlie Bolden has decided on the Orion-based design reference vehicle for the development phase of the multi-purpose crew vehicle, or MPCV. This is consistent with the provisions of the Authorization Act signed last fall and the continuing resolution signed this spring. The design is sound and is consistent with the requirements associated with the MPCV. We consider this vehicle to be the best option for this phase of development for exploration beyond low Earth orbit. We are moving forward with the existing contract to keep development of our new crew vehicle on track. We are announcing the decision on the MPCV today. At the same time, we are making substantial progress in decisions leading to the design concept and are focusing on the approach for the Space Launch System, or SLS. We have completed design, uh, detailed design studies on a range of alternatives and are focusing on defining the strategy to move forward. So not only did uh, uh, Mr. Cook go into uh, the the Orion or the uh, multi-purpose crew vehicle, or whatever the devil they're going to call it. Uh, he also went into the space launch system a little bit, which is basically going to be the the large booster that they have that NASA has been uh, charged to go ahead and construct uh, by Congress. Now they're hoping for uh, the new vehicle to come online around the 2016 time frame, along with the uh, the new booster. It looks like though, as far as development time is concerned. Um, the uh, the MPC the MPCV is a little further along in development, obviously, than the uh, than the booster is. So there's they may they meaning NASA might decide to slow down development of the uh, of the of the crew vehicle uh, to match uh, the uh, the booster or the SLS, whatever the, the space launch system, whatever the devil they're going to call the booster. Um, to talk a little bit about uh, how the the Orion or or, or the new uh, multi-purpose crew vehicle, I keep on saying Orion, guys. My apologies. I guess it's 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 sort of uh, I, I guess it's sort of constellation centric here. Um, but uh, one of the questions I wanted to ask, and unfortunately, Sawyer, you and I tried to get into that conference and we couldn't do it. But uh, I did after listening to it. I noticed that some folks asked the questions that we were going to ask anyway, so I, I thought I'd go ahead and 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 put that in. Uh, one of the questions asked was about the uh, the duration of the vehicle and what it was supposed to do. Can, for instance, can the vehicle go past 21 days if you're talking about a Mars flight? And um, Doug Cook had a very interesting answer to that question, so we'll go ahead and run that answer here. Uh, yes, basically uh, the approach on this vehicle is for uh, primarily, primarily for uh, launch and entry with, with in-space uh, capabilities for certain periods of time. Uh, generally, um, for these type missions, we for long for long term missions uh, that are, are are much longer than 21 days, we would assume that we have in space uh, habitation uh, in a larger co compartment or um, module, uh, just because the crew need crew need more time uh, more space uh, for a long longer period of time. So, basically, um, the vehicle. During these missions, whether it be to a lunar orbit um, or to near-Earth asteroids or Mars or the moons of Mars, uh, th this vehicle would would be uh, just maintained in a in a more dormant mode 
while the crew would be in another another's um, volume, uh, which would have the longer term consumables and, and capability to support them. Uh, but but basically, this vehicle is the is, is the one that um, that we would use for any of those missions, including Mars. Um, but the functionality there would be primarily launching to this larger volume or or returning at the high high entry speeds that we'd have from that type of mission. Uh, you wouldn't expect the crew to live in this for for long periods of time. So it was sort of. The approach basically saying that this was going to be a, a taxi to an awaiting larger vehicle, and that this that the uh, the MPCV was essentially going to just be used for crew delivery and crew return from a long duration flight. It was not going to be used as the you know uh, it was just going to be part of a system essentially. Um, one of the other questions I had was um, about using this this particular vehicle for the ISS, and um, somebody was gracious enough to go ahead and ask that question, and uh, Doug Cook had an interesting response to that. So why don't we go ahead and play that clip, Sawyer? Um, basically, um, we have in the requirements a backup um, a mode for, for uh, supplying or, or for traveling to and from space station. Uh, this would be in the event that um, that we uh, had to fall back on this be for one reason or another because we didn't have other access, uh, whether it be through uh, Soyuz or through um, through commercial vehicles. Although we don't expect that to be the case um, and don't expect those kind of problems, it could be used uh, for flying to low Earth orbit. It, it's basically uh, overkill for that type of mission, but could could do that. Um, so it, it would be fairly inefficient in that mode, but could could be used as a as a backup. So yeah, uh, essentially the answer was uh, that it could do that. Of course, um, by then we hope to be uh, having. Uh, uh, the Dragon delivering crew to the ISS. We hopefully will have Orbital Systems and Sierra Nevada and Blue Origin and all those other guys doing the same thing, uh, delivering crew and cargo to the ISS. But um, to use this particular vehicle would be sort of overkill um, for uh, for ISS uh, uh, for an ISS shuttle vehicle. But it can serve that if it really had to. So, again, uh, the U.S. is sort of hedging its bets a little bit with, with this particular vehicle uh, and making sure that it still, even though it, it has a, a vast array of, of commercial folks that can go ahead and deliver crew and cargo to ISS, that we still have a short access to, to, to ISS. Um, another question was asked about reusability, and I think that this was a question that Bill Harwood had. Um, about reusability, and if if any of this was going to be, um, you know, shuttle-like in a way, because as you know, we've been using the same vehicles now for about 30 years. So um, let's uh, uh, let's hear Doug Cook and what what uh, he had to say about this. In, in terms of being reusable, um, uh, we we are looking at that. Um, we um, uh, we look at it from the total vehicles. Standpoint as well as components, um, whether or not um, whether or not we feel like um, when we land we we 
basically compromise anything. Um, it does land in water. It would land in salt water. So you take that into account in terms of the systems and, and whether or not you expose uh, the internal atmosphere to that, that environment. We, um, uh, I think at this point we, we, we believe, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the latest results, uh, think that at least at a system level, a lot of the components are reusable. So, but we do, we do look at that in detail to, ma to make sure that we take advantage of, of reusability where we can. So they are going to be looking into some reusability on the, uh, on the MPCV, but uh, uh, again, um, you've got, uh, you've got a saltwater impact and what that's going to do to components inside inside the ship or outside the ship is is anybody's guess so you know you'll have to have to grapple with 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 the sea environment after after landing so it, i don't know how they're they're going to go ahead and try to figure out what components of this are going to be reusable and what what aren't but uh i'm really thinking guys we're we're going back to uh the Apollo days where we use this thing and once and kind of throw it away. So we'll just have to have to see how it all develops. But uh, so it looks like the new the new uh, MPCV era is is beginning. Um, another question that another member of the press asked was about the name for the vehicle. They said, you know, MPCV is kind of a you know an awkward you know name here. And um, Cook basically said that's the furthest thing from his head right now. Um, but, you know, guys, here's what you have to do. Do I think just keep the Orion. Everybody knows it as Orion at this point. You know, they still have the old emblem from Constellation there. I know folks are trying to, you know, bury that program in a way and pretend it never happened. But, you know, guys, it did actually exist at one point. Um and and again, everybody kind of knows this ship as Orion. So keep the Orion name. I, I think I don't even know how how expensive it would actually even be to change the name. So just you know, go with it as Orion. Keep the keep the insignia and and just just keep it going. That that's that's my opinion. Sure, you don't want to ask Hollywood for their thoughts on uh, naming it. <laughs> uh, no, that, that that would be scary. <laughs> Yeah, I'm. I'm telling you, just letting anybody else coming up with the name for it. Keep it even, Orion or what? I, honestly, just changing the name from Orion would give me the NPCVs. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So you're in my camp. <laughs> we haven't. And I'm. I, again, for me, it, it's just an economic thing. That's all. Honestly, people knew the next generation of spacecraft. That NASA was going on with their Constellation program and the Orion capsule. Why change everybody's perception? They know that NASA's goal is to still continue on to the future. It doesn't matter whatever happened to the past uh, program. Do you think how many people actually know that Obama actually decided to cancel it? Um, people that have been attuned to what's going on, I think, know. But you know, you know what I think is actually happening right before our eyes. Constellation is sort of slowly reassembling itself, but it's it's just not going forward as quickly as as everybody had ho hoped it would. I actually think what's going on is 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 just sort of a 
a slow ramp up to going back to the moon back to, and, and going on to Mars and onto an asteroid or whatever. But it's you're, you're looking at, a, I think, a slow ramp up. I mean, it may not be called Constellation, but the but its ghost is still um, out there haunting, haunting, uh, haunting the entire space program. Well, we'll soon find out when the, what ends up happening to it. But in my opinion, I say call it Orion. It, it At this point, though, it doesn't really matter. At this point, let's just finish off the shuttle program with the bang and then see what they actually plan to do with the MPCV, like uh, besides not going to the International Space Station. Yeah. Gina, what do you think? Seriously. And do you think it's it, it means anything or, or what? My guess is that there's a lot of internal situations that probably created the name change. Whether people that were on the original products project have shifted and the identity of the project itself is completely different, even though that the physicality of the entity may be somewhat similar. At the makeup of who the team is behind it could have drastically changed with a lot of internal shifting at NASA. So Perhaps the new team, the new environment, the new situation doesn't want one to be identified as Orion. Orion, for what we know, I don't know, maybe it's got maybe a slight connotation at NASA. If it was something that was known for over budget, behind schedule, or maybe NASA sensitive to that, if they don't want to go out with that and, and have this project be painted by that brush, maybe a more accurate way to put it. But um, whether they call it Orion or, you know, some sort of crew vehicle really doesn't matter to me. When they figure out the rocket system and, and name a, a system of missions, I, I think that'll be a whole different ball game. So, you know, I mean, look at the lunar module. It was the lunar exploration module. And then they decided to drop the E, but people still called it LM or the limb because it was L-E-M. And they always called it the limb. Yeah. Even though it was only the LM. So, you know, what it eventually takes shape and is known for, uh, I don't know, get to be seen. Probably be people inside of NASA that kind of give it its nickname anyways. Yeah, and and I wouldn't be a bit surprised if we went went back to the old call signs again like we did with Apollo. So. And something else, too, with acronyms, if you throw a vowel or two in there, they're more pronounceable. That's very true. Now, I don't have any suggestions, but uh, you know, hey, for for acronym makers everywhere, you know, give us a vowel, make us make it so we can pretend it's a word. <laughs> that might work. So we'll see. Indeed, we'll see. And uh, with that, I believe we continue on to our next story. Which for this, we are going to head to one of the possible destinations of the MPCV, and that is Mars, where there's a possibility that one day. They will revive Spirit, but until then, Spirit has been officially presumed unrevivable. It's a sad thought. After over seven years on the Red Planet, Spirit is now officially being considered dead as they have not heard from her in months. And this is the point where the sun would re-hit its solar panels again and they should be hearing from her again. Yeah, it's kind of you know it, the, the it was a press conference called um, the same day as the uh, the MPCV announcement, and 
the whole idea was JPL was starting to get telephone calls from the press asking, you know, about Spirit's status, and they've been getting telephone calls for a very long time. Uh, so they just decided to go forward uh, and have a uh, you know, sort of an impromptu press conference and say, "Yeah, we believe Spirit's lost." And uh, if you if you think about what this this vehicle did and for how long i mean both the both uh, mars exploration rovers spirit and opportunity were only supposed to last what about 90 days i think and spirit lasted how many how many years seven she landed uh, in 2003 and it's seven or eight years i yeah. i think it just passed eight but i'm not positive yeah so um uh, John Callis, uh, one of the uh, uh, the folks on on the Mars Exploration Rover project, spoke about Spirit's discoveries and what Spirit was able to go ahead and accomplish in its uh, its time on Mars. And Sawyer, why don't we go ahead and play that clip? This is again from that press conference. Well, you know, everything came hard to Spirit uh, compared to Opportunity. Uh, she really had to struggle for so many different things. But uh, you know, some of the the, the big uh, highlights for Spirit um, were the the discovery of, of carbonates at what we call Comanche outcrop on the Columbia Hills. Uh, this has you know big implications to the uh, ancient environment on Mars, the habitability of Mars, um, you know the uh, presence of a thicker atmosphere and liquid water. Um, the other big one, which came about because of the failure of the right front wheel, you know. Um, uh, we um, lost the functioning of the right front wheel in 2004 and had to relearn to drive the rover and driving it backwards mostly. And dragging that wheel, when you drag the wheel, it cuts a little furrow, and it reveals what's just beneath the surface. And it reveals stuff we would have just driven right by because it's camouflaged under the ground. And one of those discoveries was the presence of amorphous silica, which is um, a evidence for an ancient hydrothermal system on Mars. So this means that not only was there water on Mars, but there was an energy source that could have been driving a putative ecosystem. And so this, that's a really big discovery. And, and it's, it's amazing that it came about because of a setback experienced by the rover. Um, and even where the rover got stuck, um, this uh, uh, place called uh, Troy next to home plate, where we churned up this loose material that made it um, uh, difficult for the rover to extricate. Um, what made it difficult was that it were these unconsolidated minerals were likely a recent remobilization by liquid water on Mars, recent being maybe the last obliquity change of Mars like a million years ago. Uh, so that's yet another example of a great discovery coming out of an unfortunate event for Spirit. You know, whenever Spirit was handed lemons and made lemonade, and and those are, are significant discoveries uh, and very different from the, the, the accomplishments of opportunity. So Spirit, again, had a, a lot of accomplishments and a lot of science to, uh, to unveil on, on Mars, and it, it had a wonderful career there. Um, somebody also asked what the, what the mood in the office was, and it, it was not really one of sadness, really. It was, you know, yeah, a little bit a little bit sad, but it was more of a celebratory mood that, you know, shoot, this spacecraft lasted this long, and it was never designed to do that. Plus, things kind of, kind of always, as uh, John Callis kind of sort of said, Spirit always had, had to work for it, never had things uh, – uh, given to her on a silver platter, and 
because of that malfunction on on the uh, on one of the wheels, they actually had to learn how to re redrive that rover, and uh, they were able, still able to accomplish science science with it. Um, Dave Laverty, one of the other uh, folks attached to the um, attached to the Mars Exploration Rover Project, had a had an interesting uh, summation as far as what Spirit's legacy would be. So why don't we go ahead and listen to that? There's an enormous amount that can and still will be written about the, the, the science that Spirit has returned and the discoveries that she made and the information she sent back uh, about Mars. And uh, the science team are going to be writing papers for a very, very long time about that. But one of the other things that is, is equally, and perhaps in some cases even more important about the accomplishments of the, of the rover, is the inspiration that the, the message that the rover provided uh, not just to the team that worked on, on her, but also really to the entire country about the fact that we were able to, to put together a project that was able to send a mobile machine to the surface of another planet to operate well beyond its, its intended uh, lifetime and really leave behind a legacy that has been an inspirational message to the entire country. In particular, um, I happen to work with a lot of students, and there have been so many opportunities over the past couple of years, uh, literally ever since two days after the landing, where I was able to talk to students and get their perspective on the mission and to watch and hear the tone in the voice of a student who had a chance to explain what these rovers have meant to them and their opportunity to understand how we as an, a nation can really do anything we want to has been absolutely irrefutable. They get it. They understand that these rovers represent the best of what this country is all about, and the science, the inspiration, the engineering and technical accomplishments all come as part of that, and they want to take that and use it as, as part of the message that they want to carry forward into the future. That sense of wonder, that sense of, of accomplishment is something that goes way beyond the hard technical facts behind just the science. So Laverty kind of sort of said it wasn't just the science. It was sort of the inspiration on what what these rovers were able to not only just accomplish up there on Mars, but also for uh, the, the association they had with with students um, of, of his and and how they were you know sort of brought into the project as well and and they got it as as he said they understood why you know, that this was sort of a symbol of what the united states could do as a country that we could go ahead and build this vehicle that was again only supposed to last about 90 days and make it last as long as it did through our own ingenuity and don't forget opportunity is still up there chugging along um, and it is, and as the the conference talked about, uh, opportunity is still in very good health, and is still doing some great science. And you know, scientists will be writing papers about what spirits discovered, so it too will have a have a lasting legacy. And uh, the Mars exploration, Mars, um, the M MSL, the uh, uh, is also going to be showing up there. When's that due for launch, Mark? Again, that's that's uh, no in November, I think. The Mars Science Laboratory, that's due for launch in November, correct, I think? Yes, I believe year. it's the, the later part of uh, 2011, and I don't recall the exact date. It's been always been one of those things that's far enough out that I hadn't really focused on uh, on that exact date. And by the way, just as a little, uh, little tidbit, uh, we interviewed uh, Mars rover driver Scott Maxwell back in uh, June of 2010, episode 219, 
anybody that uh, wasn't with us back then or wants to give it a listen, that was a, a fun show that we did with Scott Maxwell, episode 219 from 2010. And we'd love to love to talk to, to Scott again at some point and talk a little bit about you know losing spirit and uh, how they're going to compensate with that with opportunity and uh, talk a little bit about uh, Spirit's Big Brother, the Mars Science Laboratory that's that's coming in November. So it, you know, I'm hoping we can I'm hoping we can get to talk to him again or somebody from from the MSL uh, program to go ahead and talk and talk about that because the Mars Science Laboratory is going to be an exciting mission, I think. Well, MSL or Curiosity will obviously report on that as the time comes around in November. But for now, all the best to Oppie, who's still roving on the surface, and Spirit, we will remember you. I believe with that, we can bring this episode to its conclusion. So with that, I'd like to thank everybody for joining us. Thank you for coming along tonight, Gene McCulka. Thank you, and uh, I'd also want to, since this is Memorial Day weekend again, uh, uh, or as we record this, it's Memorial Day weekend, uh, and uh, I just want to go ahead and thank all of our our veterans out there, and just remember those who did not come back from uh, from serving their country. Many of the astronauts in uh, any corps usually have some military background, and that was the case up until at least the shuttle program that everybody had a military background. But uh, again, thank you everybody for serving our con- for whatever country you're from. It's always appreciated. Thank you as well, Mark Ratterman. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to uh, hearing our special guest and also looking forward to next show. I'm looking forward to hearing the war stories you're going to come back with on the next show, Mark. I'm, <laughs> that's what I'm looking forward to hearing. <laughs> oh, yeah, we can't wait for that. And thank you again for that amazing guest. I'm the only one of us besides you that has listened to it up until this release date, so it's a good one. And thank you as well for joining us, Gina Hurley. Anytime, Sawyer. How about same bad time, same bad channel next week? In case there was any doubt, Sawyer is back. I would hope that's the case. <laughs> I hope I'm back. You're, you're certainly not an imitation. Or am I? <laughs> Stunning conclusion, coming next week. <laughs> oh, God. Let's end this, please. I'm begging you before it gets too silly. Thank you for joining us from Sawyer's Evil Twin. <laughs> no, in all seriousness, thank you for joining us. And as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are. Go Endeavor. Go Endeavor.